What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Well, that is going to be the last Sunday that you see that little video clip introducing the series of Nehemiah, because this Sunday is the last Sunday in our series, our study of Nehemiah. Next Sunday, uh, Pastor Dave LeBlanc will be preaching, and I know you're going to want to hear his heart with his big news about what God is doing and calling him where he is leading him. The following Sunday is actually the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Yes, Thanksgiving is coming up that quickly, if you uh, hadn't realized that. And that Sunday, November 26, we're going to begin a five-Sunday Christmas series preparing for Christmas. And I just throw this out right now. If you have a friend that you've been thinking about inviting to church, particularly an unbelieving friend, that's going to be a good series to do it. We will, in a creative way, I won't reveal it this morning, we will, in a creative way, unpack the Christmas story and even the cultural trappings around the Christmas story in a way that clearly presents the gospel each of those five Sundays. That'll begin two weeks from today on November 26. So I invite you back for that. That left me in a position where I had to decide, how do we finish out our series on Nehemiah? We have a couple chapters to go, and I really wanted to finish with chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a chapter of triumph. It's a chapter where the wall, the the, the way the book has been leading us, the wall is rebuilt and the people are celebrating and there's victory, there's a rebuilt wall, there's a restored city, there is a revived people. But that's not where the book of Nehemiah ends. The The book of Nehemiah ends in chapter 13. And humanly, I wish it didn't. Humanly, I wish it ended on that note of triumph in chapter 12. But maybe because Nehemiah is real life, like the real life that you and I live, it ends in chapter 13. After that note of triumph, we come upon something in chapter 13 that we really did not expect to see the way the book has been leading us. We come upon spiritual relapse. And I think that speaks to where, certainly where I have been, And maybe that speaks to where you are this morning, or if not, where you know you have been. The reality of spiritual relapses in our life. You know that term, relapse. It's often used in the language of recovery. It means to fall back. It means you've achieved a certain place, either in recovery or spiritually in your relationship with Jesus or in your marriage or other relationship, or even a church has achieved a certain place but then you fall back. In fact, sometimes we use the term backsliding to represent that. And so even the historical, even though the historical circumstances in Nehemiah are, are ones that maybe you can't directly relate to, you can relate, I'm sure, to the reality of spiritual relapses. 
So this chapter speaks to us. Even after all the achievements and all the victory, they experience relapse. That's what we see happening in Judah. The context is set for us in verse 6 of chapter 13. This seems like history, but it does set the picture for us. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, Nehemiah writes, after some time I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. This just puts how this all has worked out in context for us. I don't know if you remember, but way back in chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah was first brought to Jerusalem. God sent him to Jerusalem in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. So now we're in the 32nd year. So that just gives us the context. 12 years Nehemiah has been in Jerusalem as the governor. Twelve years, that that wall was rebuilt fairly quickly. The people were revived as we saw in chapters 8 and 9. They recommitted themselves in verse 10. And you would think at this point, you know, the story would end and they live happily ever after. But that's not how it ends. At that twelfth year, Nehemiah honors a commitment that he made to the king. Way back in chapter 2, When the king said, yes, you can go, Nehemiah, to Jerusalem. You can follow where the Lord is pulling you. The king asked him, when will you return? The king wanted this faithful servant back in his service. So in chapter 2, verse 6, Nehemiah says, I gave him a definite time. And now Nehemiah is honoring that promise. And he returns from Jerusalem to Susa, the capital of Persia. He returns to the service of the king. And then it says some time passes. We don't know exactly. That's probably a couple years. But he feels the call, the longing to return to Jerusalem. So he asks, again in verse 6, for a leave of absence, which the king of Persia grants him. And he goes back to Jerusalem. What Nehemiah finds when he returns after this unspecified period, I'm guessing it's a couple years, what he finds in Jerusalem is that they had relapsed from their recommitments. And this this fits very well if you were here last week with what we saw in chapter 10. And chapter 10 is the result of the revival that God was stirring among them. They made a number of recommitments. Just like maybe you and I have in times of revival or as the Lord is working in our life, we make recommitments about how we want to love the Lord, about how we want to follow the Lord, about how we want to serve the Lord. And that's what they did. We saw last week in chapter 10. And now we're going to see what Nehemiah found about those recommitments. For instance, by the way, you might want to keep a finger if you have your Bible open in in chapter 10 and chapter 13, or if you're doing that on a smartphone or a tablet. I'm not sure how you keep those maybe two screens or something. You figure it out. But we're going to be jumping back and forth between chapters 10 and chapter 13. So back in chapter 10, first of all, they recommitted themselves to give from their resources to support the worship of God in the temple. Starting with verse 35, we we saw them say that. We obligate ourselves to bring to the house of our Lord our contributions, the, the fruit of the trees and the wine and the oil to the priests and the Levites ministering there. They made that recommitment because without their regular contributions, the priests and the Levites would not have the support they needed to carry out the ministry of the temple. And every local church, just like central church, is in a similar situation. Local churches 
depend upon the people who worship there regularly, who enjoy its ministry, to contribute regularly to the support of the worship and ministry going on in that church. And that's what was happening in that recommitment in chapter 10. But although the people had made that recommitment, what did Nehemiah find when he returned from Persia in chapter 13? They'd relapsed. They'd backslidden from that commitment. Chapter 13, verse 10, I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. He found that the people had stopped giving regularly, and that put those who served in the temple, who ministered in the temple, the Levites and the singers, kind of equivalent to our staff, our worship team, they no longer had the support that they needed to do that. So what did they do? They left. They went back to their fields. They went back to the the farms of their families where they at least knew they could eat and they could live. So the Levites and the singers, they abandoned the work of the temple. And that is a stark reality that every church faces. Staff can't be hired or, or staff can't be retained unless there is a commitment on the part of those who make up the congregation to give regularly, to contribute to the support of that. Well, secondly, back in chapter 10, they had recommitted themselves to keep the temple holy. We see this in chapter 10, verse 9. The people of Israel and the sons of Levi, they shall do all this, bring all the contributions, put it in the storerooms. Why? We will not neglect or forsake the house of our God. In other words, this temple had been rebuilt under under Ezra's leadership. The temple had been rededicated It was to be used exclusively for the worship of God. It wasn't supposed to be a marketplace. It wasn't supposed to be a political stage. It wasn't supposed to be a place of political maneuvering and intrigue. And that's what they dedicated themselves to. All the rooms of the temple, all the chambers, all the courts of the temple would be used either directly or in support of the worship of God. And to do anything else, they said, we recognize would be to forsake, to neglect the worship of our God. By the way, that's what Jesus found out was going on in the temple when He came to Jerusalem, didn't He? The temple had been converted to a marketplace. The temple had been made, in some cases, a political stage. Been used as a place of political manipulation. And that's what happens when any church allows its ministry to become commercialized or politicized. The worship of God, the worship of Christ is neglected. It's forsaken. Well, they make that commitment in chapter 10, and although they've made that commitment, what did Nehemiah find when he comes back in chapter 13, verse 5? Eliashib had provided Tobiah with a large chamber, a part of the temple that had been used to store the temple articles for worship and the tithes and the contributions. A little background here. Eliashib is the high priest. So this is the man who has control over how the temple and all of its, its rooms and chambers and precincts are to be used. And for reasons we'll discover a little bit later, he's allowed a man named Tobiah to clear out one of these storerooms and to set up a temporary apartment in there. And who's Tobiah? Again, if you remember back Many, many weeks ago in our early chapters of Nehemiah, we saw that Tobiah was the man identified in chapter 2 as an Ammonite 
I think we could call him strong man. Some kind of politician, some kind of official, but not a good one. And he's Ammonite. He's not Jewish. He's from the territory that, that today is modern-day Syria. And we saw back in, in chapter 4 that he was angered by Nehemiah's attempts to lead the rebuilding of the temple. We saw in chapter 6 that he actually was behind a plan to assassinate Nehemiah to prevent the rebuilding of the temple. So, I, I mean, just try to put this all together. A man who is not a Jew, who does not worship the God of the Jews... A man who's been opposed to the, to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. A man who has tried to assassinate Nehemiah somehow has been able to maneuver himself where he not only has free access to come and go in Jerusalem, but he has a temporary residence in the temple itself whenever he is in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Well, we'll get there in a few minutes. Eliashib had been providing Tobiah with his chamber, so it came through the high priest's permission. But what an act of profaning the temple that was. We'll come back to that. Third, back in chapter 10, they had recommitted themselves to set aside the Sabbath for rest and for worship. We saw this in chapter 10, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Now again, as we saw last week, this isn't just about we're going to set up these legalistic rules about what we can and can't do on the Sabbath. No, this is a bigger vision than this. This is for them saying, Lord, we acknowledge that we're made in your image. And being made in your image, the pattern that you've set for our lives is the pattern that you exhibited even in creation. You, you worked six days of creation and you set aside the seventh day to rest. And so we being made in your image, we are made, we are designed to have that same pattern where we work for a period of time and then we have a period of time where we rest and we worship and that is your goodwill for us. That is your good design for us. That is actually for our blessing. And so we commit to following your, your Sabbath rules, not because they are a legalistic set of rules that earn us favor, but because they follow your pattern of work and rest and worship. But although the people had made that recommitment back in chapter 10, what did Nehemiah find when he returned from Persia? Chapter 13, verse 15. I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Full marketplace activity. God's design for the Sabbath was ignored. His pattern of life with work and rest and worship was abandoned. And by the way, how easy it is for us to relapse into this area. How easy it is for us to rationalize away a regular pattern of worshiping with the body of Christ saying, you know, that, that's just a set of rules. We're not bound by rules. How easy it is us for us to get caught up and, and you know, I need to work because I need the financial security or the desire for entertainment or leisure and to slowly relapse in that area as well. 
Fourth, they had recommitted themselves back in chapter 10 to marriage that honored God. We saw that back in chapter 10, verse 20, where they made the recommitment, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And again, this is not about excluding somebody who's a Moabite or an Ammonite because it's a racial or ethnic thing. Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth was incorporated into the nation of Israel. So this isn't racial discrimination. This isn't ethnic division. This is about being equally yoked in marriage. This is about what Ezra warned about. If you read the book of Ezra, right before the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, especially chapter 9, he was very concerned about the influences of the people in the surrounding nations who didn't recognize the one true God. He writes in Ezra chapter 9 that the Ammonites and the Moabites, they have polluted the land by their detestable practices. What is he referring there? You study the way the Moabites and the Ammonites worship. They practice child sacrifice. Killing children is an act of worship. They practice detestable sexual practices. And Ezra saw the reality of this. If you allow a a, a man or woman who's an Israelite to marry an unconverted Moabite or Ammonite, what is likely to happen? You bring slowly the influences of those detestable practices into Israel, into the worship. You corrupt the worship and the life of Israel as a nation. That's what he was warning against, that being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And that's, of course, what... What we talked about last week, that's the same danger to the spiritual life of a Christian man or woman who today, whose desire to be married eclipses his or her desire to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. If our desire to be married is greater than our desire to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, then it is easy to be tempted into an unequally yoked relationship. It's easy to rationalize away what Scripture tells us about you need to marry someone who is also following Jesus Christ. So you're equally yoked. You're both pulling the load equally. And what often happens, what, what too often happens, is when there is an unequally yoked marriage like this, the same thing happens to us as, as Nehemiah found when he returned from Persia. Chapter 13, verse 23. 23 I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children could not even speak the language of Judah. There had been so much intermarriage happening with the Moabites and the Ammonites during the time that Nehemiah was gone, that, that now this, this, this age group of children was growing up who couldn't even speak the language of Israel, Hebrew. And if they couldn't speak the language of, of, of Israel, they couldn't read the Word of God, which was written in Hebrew. Isn't that what too often happens when you have an unequally yoked marriage today? You have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse that everything gets watered down so the children who are produced by that marriage are not raised up to hear the Word of God, to hear the Gospel. Too often, not always, but too often that happens. Well, these are four of the, the recommitments that they relapsed in. And, and some you may be able to identify, some you may not. But you and I know that we could go well beyond this list when we think of the ways that we are tempted to relapse, that we are tempted to backslide in our lives. And so I think the more important question for you and me this morning 
is what causes relapses? What caused them to relapse from their recommitments? What causes us to relapse? In other words, what should we be on guard against? If we don't want to backslide, if we don't want to fall into a state that is less than what the Lord has brought us to, what do we need to be on guard against? And I believe that it lies here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 13. Let me go back there. Chapter, chapter 13, verse 4. Eliashib, the high priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Let me pause right there. Eliashib's the high priest. Eliashib is the man who determines what goes on in the temple. Eliashib had a weakness. And that weakness was that he was related to Tobiah. Now, we're not told the details, but, but somehow there must have been an intermarriage between someone in the family of Eliashib, the Jewish high priest, and someone in the family of Tobiah, the Ammonite strongman. And because of that corrupting influence, Eliashib now has a weakness. He now has this shirt-tail relative who has influence upon him, who through whatever, whether it's their children or their grandchildren that, that got married, has the ability to play on that marriage and to manipulate him. And that's exactly what Tobiah probably did. Verse 5, Eliashib the priest prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessel, and the ties of grain, wine, and oil. Because of this relationship, Tobiah has been able to influence and manipulate Eliashib to clear out a storeroom in the temple and allow him to set up visiting quarters, really allowing him to set up an Ammonite outpost right inside the temple itself. And this gives Tobiah access not only to a place that somehow legitimizes his undermining activity, but it allows him to influence the governing and even the worshiping of the Jews there in Jerusalem, all because they were related. They had this tie with each other. When Nehemiah returns in, in verse 7 there, he calls this exactly what it is. When I returned to Jerusalem, I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. It is evil. It is the very opposite of their commitment to keep themselves separate from the corrupting pagan influences that had been the downfall of their ancestors. Actually, what it's doing, it's inviting those pagan influences right into the center of their worship, right into the center of their religious life. Well, very quickly, how did Nehemiah respond to these relapses upon his return? I mean, I think there's something for us to see in how he responded, but I really then want to get where we'll close today with how does this address you and me in the places where we're tempted to relapse individually and collectively? Nehemiah's response, first, verse 8, he goes right to the root of it. I was very angry. I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. He foreshadows here what Jesus did when he found corruption in the temple, doesn't he? He clears it out. Verse 9, I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And then he doesn't leave the chambers empty. 
because he knows that, you know, you, you clear out the bad stuff, but if you don't put in the good stuff, you leave a vacuum that'll fill itself in some other way. And so what does he do? I brought back the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. In verse 11, he calls back those who should be ministering there. He calls them back to their duties. I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Don't let this happen anymore. Do your duty and be on guard. Verse, or this third thing in verse 17, he stops their violations of the Sabbath. I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is the evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Verse 22, I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Fourth, he confronts their sin of intermarriage. Verse 25, I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. You go on and read the surrounding verses on that, you'll find he gets even a little more severe than that, including the pulling out of hair. But we're not going to go there this morning. The book of Nehemiah ends with these confrontations. Did these confrontations work? Did the people return from their relapses, from their backsliding? We don't know. We don't know. It closes with these confrontations. And, and here's the thing. I know that Nehemiah is not the last book in where it appears in your Old Testament, but historically, it's the last book in the, the Old Testament in terms of the history of the Jews. What do we see when we open the New Testament and get into the Gospels? What's the condition of Jerusalem? What does Jesus have to address when he comes to Jerusalem? It's not very encouraging, is it? But even more importantly, how does this speak to you and me? How does this speak to you and me and our temptations to relapse, our temptations to backslide individually, our temptations collectively as a church to relapse, to backslide from places that the Lord has brought us to? I believe that this historical situation that we see here as Nehemiah closes is also a picture of a spiritual reality in our lives. The tendency that we all have to struggle against to relapse in our spiritual commitments. And and here I want to use the image right out of the story to to show you, I think, what really goes on in our heart. You'll, You'll get this as I unpack it for you, but why do we relapse? Because Tobiah is in our temple. Tobiah is in our temple. That is a spiritual, or that is a historical image of a spiritual reality that we all struggle with. Uh, Let me explain. God's temple at that time was in Jerusalem. It's destroyed now, but at that time, God's temple existed to, to be a glory to all the unbelieving world around it, to draw people to the worship of the one true God. Jesus came, the temple was destroyed, Jesus teaches something radically different. And and we see it explained by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you, you if you follow Jesus, you if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
So God's presence is no longer manifested in the Jerusalem temple, which, by the way, has been destroyed and has not been rebuilt. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians there, teaches us that if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are God's temple. God's presence, God's Holy Spirit resides in us. And that is true of us individually as individual Christians. But you know, in the context Paul is writing there in 1 Corinthians 3, he's really saying that is true of us collectively. That is true of us when we come together as a local congregation like Central Church. God's Spirit dwells in us, among us. We are God's temple. What that means for you and for me is that every part of our lives, every part of our individual lives, every part of our church life together is to be dedicated to glorifying Him. To shine a light so the the unbelieving world lost in spiritual darkness is actually drawn to what they see in us. What they see in us individually, the way we live our lives, what they see in our marriages, what they see in our families, what they see in our relationships, what they see in our church. That is God's desire for why we are His temple and God's Spirit dwells in us. But we struggle individually and collectively with the same kind of corrupting influence that the Jews here in Nehemiah 13 did. Tobiah is in our temple. Just like El Yashib, the Jewish high priest, we have this Shirt-tail relative, this old relative who seeks to influence and manipulate us. The New Testament calls this our flesh, or some versions say it's our sinful nature. The flesh is that, that corrupted spiritual nature that we all inherited from Adam and Eve. That The flesh, the, 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 the sinful nature, it's the pull that you and I, we all feel towards self-centeredness. The pull that we feel towards pride the pull that we feel towards wanting to control things around us in our lives and in our relationships and in our church and beyond. The New Testament describes what this looks like in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. Do you see that war that is going on within us? Even those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ? The flesh and the Spirit are at war with each other. And if you go on to read the next six verses there in Galatians 5, you see that that war visualized. You see that our flesh wants to fill the chambers of our lives with impurity and sensuality and sexual immorality. And the Spirit wants to cleanse these chambers of our lives and wants to fill those areas of our lives with true love, with self-control, with faithfulness, with goodness. Our flesh wants to fill the chambers of our church life together with with enmity, with strife, with jealousy, with fits of anger, with dissensions and divisions. The Spirit wants to cleanse those chambers of our church life together. The Spirit wants to fill our church life together with the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. This struggle is going on in each of us individually. This struggle goes on in us as a church body. 
And isn't this why we relapse into the patterns of sin that we each personally struggle with? Because we allow Tobiah in our temple? We give him influence? We allow him to reign in certain... We allow our flesh to reign in certain areas of our lives to influence and manipulate us? Isn't this why we experience conflict in our marriages, in our families, in our church? Because we allow Tobiah in our temple. We allow our flesh to stir up strife and jealousy and dissensions and divisions among us. Isn't this ultimately why our churches are such dim lights in the darkness of the unbelieving world? Because we allow Tobiah in our temple. We allow our selfish preferences and our fleshly behavior to fill so many chambers, so many areas of our church life together. How do we cleanse the chambers? How do we do what Nehemiah did here? How do we cleanse both the chambers of our individual lives? How do we cleanse the chambers of our church life together? I think the answer is in Galatians 5, a little further down, verses 24 and 25. We crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, and we get back in step with the Spirit. Here's the reality, and I pray it's happening even this morning. I pray individually when you think about areas of your life. I pray collectively when you think about how you function in your role in this church body. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He prods us. Remember the ox goad illustration from two weeks ago? He prods us. He convicts us of areas where we've allowed the flesh to take over like Tobiah in the temple. He gives us the opportunity to repent. He gives us the opportunity to once again get in step with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to control, to cleanse those areas of our lives and of our church life together. Now often what happens, certainly what happens in me is we stiffen our necks. But the Lord is a good and gracious God and He loves us and He presses harder and harder. He doesn't get maybe as severe as Nehemiah here pulling out the hair of the people, but He presses and presses he convicts and He convicts because He wants us to bring to the, us to the place where we see, yeah, Tobiah has had free reign in my life. Tobiah, the flesh, has had free reign in my church. He wants to show us how our flesh has taken control of areas of our lives. And then He wants to move us to crucify it. He wants us to move to the, where we crucify the flesh, where we seek not just to throw Tobiah out, but to put him to death. And by the way, cleansing the temple of our lives, of our church life together, it's ineffective unless we also fill that vacated space with what belongs there. The presence of His Spirit and His growing fruit in our lives. He wants us to walk in the Spirit, to get back in step with the Spirit. By the way, this isn't something we do once and we've got it taken care of for our whole Christian lives. This is something that I need to do often daily. This is something that whenever the Spirit prompts us and convicts us, He calls us to respond to it. And I pray that that's what's happening even this morning. As you think about your life this morning, as you think about your individual life, as you think about your relationships, as you think about your role in the life of this church, where is the Holy Spirit convicting you this morning? Where is He showing you that Tobiah has a chamber in your heart? That, that some part of the flesh, that old nature, that, 
that nature that wants to please itself, that wants its preferences, that, that pridefully wants to be right, has taken up residence in an area of your life? Where is he showing us collectively that he's doing this in the life of our church? Where has the flesh, where has Tobiah gained influence and control? Jesus wants to cleanse the temple this morning, the temple of your life, of my life, the temple of our corporate church life together. As we look to him, he's the only one that can help us do this. He helps us crucify the flesh as he was crucified. He helps us give life to, get back in step with the spirit that he fills us with. You have an opportunity even this morning as we close singing, uh, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you and, and you feel the need to respond this morning. And once again, the, the altar is open and maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you to come forward and maybe your prayer is along the lines of, Lord Jesus, I, I, I see this area that I need to crucify. I see this, this area of my life I need to give to you once again. Tobiah is in there. Maybe, maybe it's, Lord, I see ways that I have been in functioning in my role in this church in ways that represent that the flesh has reign and I want to crucify it. Or maybe this morning it is you're coming forward and you're praying, Lord, I, I want to get in step with the Spirit. Lord, I have been wandering my own way. I have not been listening to the Spirit. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to live in the Spirit. I want the fruit of the Spirit to live through me. Help me keep in step with your Spirit. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is full of forgiveness. The Lord gives us power by His Holy Spirit to crucify the flesh, to get in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that even in your death and resurrection, you picture this for us. In the very way that you saved us, Lord Jesus, you show what it is to put to death that old nature, that flesh that just still hangs on in us. And you show in your resurrection what it means to live again, walking in your spirit, keeping in step with your spirit. So stir us this morning, Lord. If there are some who are convicted in any area, Lord, I pray that even this morning they would they would answer that, that prompting. They would respond to that conviction uh, that they would clear Tobiah out of the temple. They would fill the temple once again with, with your spirit and the fruit of your spirit. That's what we want for our lives. That's what we want for our marriages and our families and our friendships. And Lord, that's what we want for our church. We pray this, that you would be lifted up and glorified by the way we live and the way our church loves each other. Amen.